Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the podcast segment of the show that's not broadcast on station KALA. Our guest for this 438th show is Dr. Eric Klein, professor of classics, history, and anthropology, former chair of the Department of Classical and Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, and current director of the Capital Archaeological Institute at George Washington University. And we're going to be talking about 1177 BCE, the year civilization collapsed. Our history buffs are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders, and Ed, you get to start us off. Thanks, Jay. Eric, you mentioned earlier in the show that of the seven or eight cultures that were thriving in the eastern Mediterranean from 1200 to 1100 BC, um, that the Assyrians were one of them that uh, kind of came out on the other side uh, and and that they adapted kind of to the circumstances. Can you give us some more detail? about what those changes, what changes they made and how they adapted? Well, this is actually something that I'm exploring right now. Uh, um, I'm in the process of researching and writing the sequel to the original book. Uh, the sequel is called After 1177, which might not be too surprising. <laughs> but in that, I'm looking at the Iron Age, or the world's first Dark Age, depending on how you want to call it, and looking at exactly, basically, what you just asked of the societies of civilizations that managed to come out on the other side, that lived through the collapse, and were resilient enough to transform and adapt to the new normal, as it were. What did they do? What was their secret? So uh, the the quick and and dirty answer is that each society that managed to come through did so in a different way and in their own terms uh, and and at, at, at different times. So, for instance, I'm, I'm likening it to a foot race where everyone starts at the same starting line and at the same point, namely 1200 BCE, but gets to the finish line at a different time. So the Neo-Assyrians, or the Assyrians, uh, are among the most successful, as I said. They're actually, you know, in, in ancient history, we've got three different types of Assyrians. We've got the uh, old Assyrians, then the middle Assyrians, and then the neo-Assyrians. And it is, in fact, the so-called middle Assyrians that are prevalent during the late Bronze Age. But their successors, if you will, what they transform into is the new Assyrians, the neo-Assyrians. And they're eventually going to do so well that they're going to take over the entire ancient Near East, beginning in about the 9th century BCE. But we have to get them from the aftermath of the collapse um, in, in the early uh, 12th century BCE, 1177 on, to that 9th century. And so to answer your question, so far it doesn't look like they had to do an awful lot. Their administration stays intact. They continue putting up monumental buildings. They continue writing. Um, And it really looks like not much was changed except for the fact that they no longer have their supply routes. They no longer have their diplomatic partners. They no longer have their trading partners because those guys all went down. They're all gone. So 
the Neo-Assyrians are kind of on their own. They are dealing with a new group of enemies, namely uh, the Arameans, who pop up at this time. They are also dealing with survivors of the other civilizations or societies. So, for example, the Hittites go down, uh, and they're not ruling from central Anatolia anymore, but there is a rump state, as it's called, the Neo-Hittites, the New Hittites, that survive in what, what we would call North Syria. And so the Assyrians have to deal with them, and so on. But the upshot is, as far as I can tell, and I reserve the right to change my opinion, because as I say, I'm still in the process of researching and writing and formulating my ideas, but it looks to me as if the Assyrians and the Babylonians are among the least affected of any of the societies. Uh, and I'm trying to figure out why. One thing that comes to mind very easily is that they are too far inland to have been affected by the invasions of the Sea Peoples. I don't think the Sea Peoples get that far. I mean, after all, we're trying to get into what is now like modern Iraq. But I also think that the climate change, the drought, and the famine, at first didn't affect them as much because uh, they're over, uh, of course, on the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So they've still got a water source, even if the rainfall isn't um, you know, as impactful as before. But they still have other things. I mean, the Elamites, who are the, uh, the enemies, are still around. As I said, now you have the Arameans. And even if they weren't affected by the drought at first, they are eventually. And so basically, they hang on a little bit longer. But by the end of the 11th century, so maybe 100, 150 years later than anybody else, we do get records that the Assyrians are leaving us saying that they are now affected by a drought, that there now is famine. And so they actually do go down for the count from, say, the 11th century until the early 9th century. So I would say that they managed to survive longer than the others, but eventually they do go down. Uh, but they don't go down as deep. They don't lose everything. They still continue, but at a lower level of society. But when they come back up in the early 9th century, everything's still there. The, the king, the administrators, the society, the government, and all that. Now the economy comes back. And what they do is, because their trading partners are gone, what they used to get commercially, they now start taking by force. So they start attacking absolutely everybody, the Neo-Hittites, the Urartians, uh, and eventually the people down south, the, the people in Damascus, uh, even the, new, uh, the newly established Israelites, for example, in the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, which come about by the 10th century, we find the Assyrians fighting them as well. So it becomes a, a bit more warlike, shall we say, <clears throat> a little more militaristic. And eventually, the Assyrians do take over the whole Near East, as we know uh, from the various accounts, including the biblical account. So they are affected, but at kind of a different pace. So as I say, that is one of the things I'm trying to figure out right now, is why each of the civilizations were affected differently and responded differently. Why were some resilient and were able to transform? And why were some not able to make the grade and essentially disappeared like the Mycenaeans? No more writing, 
no more major buildings, no more palatial administration. Uh, and so they really have to start from scratch again in Greece. Um, but that wasn't the case in Neo-Assyria. So that's part of what I'm trying to figure out in this sequel. And again, that's relevant to today, because I'm asking the question, what if your society does collapse, what do you then do? How are you resilient? And I do think that's relative, That's relevant for today. All right, Rick. Well, he's uh, walked right into my, my question, and it was going to be my question during the broadcast. Uh, I want to run the tape backwards a little bit. You mentioned all the things that, that cause the stressors, as you mentioned. Uh, and I'm, as a political scientist, I'm, I'm wondering what was deficient in the various political, economic, and social systems of these high civilizations that they were not able to adjust and transform and continue on but collapse? Uh, have you given some thought as to systemically what, what uh, the Mycenaeans, Trojans, Babylonians, Egyptians, whatever, what was the fatal flaw in their their systems, their reality? Yeah, uh, ex- excellent question. I have given some thought to it, and again, in all of these things, there's no easy answer. If there were, not only I think could they have adjusted, but, but we could adjust today too. Um, I don't know that there was one fatal flaw that was... Um, I would say common to all of them, Uh, except for the following. I do think uh, that they were overly reliant on each other and that they were not self-sufficient enough, such that we know they were trading back in the Bronze Age for all the raw materials and the raw metals especially. I mentioned that the copper mostly came from Cyprus. The tin mostly came from Afghanistan. There is some... In southeastern Turkey, there's, of course, tin in Cornwall, but I don't know how often they were going up there. But we definitely see tin from Afghanistan. Gold, Egypt was in control of that because they had the mines that they controlled in turn down in, in Nubia and the Sudan. Silver was, was you know available in a number of different places, but especially like at the Lavrion mines outside of, of Athens. So they are busy trading for the raw materials and that extended beyond metals into even things like ivory and glass. Uh, and then they're also shipping foodstuffs around. Right? Uh, we know of grain shipments that the Egyptians sent as relief missions up to the Hittites during the famine. So uh, in addition to the raw stuff, they're also busy trading and selling finished objects such that you know, we know that there's a pair of sandals that are sent to Hammurabi, the king of Babylon, earlier, back in about 1800, from the island of Crete, which he returned, uh, and we don't know why. I think maybe they were too small, they were too less millennium, whatever. But um, they are not self-sufficient. And therefore, that's why I think when one collapsed, the others went down like dominoes. But um, we've also got other indications. And again, part of the problem is none of them wrote this down. They do not say, oh, my word, we're having trouble with our administration. We need to self-correct. You know, they don't leave us records like that. So as historians, what we're basically doing is hypothesizing and trying to figure out scenarios. 
uh, as to what happened uh, and even try and figure out could they have avoided it or not. So, for instance, it's been recently suggested that the Mycenaeans, their palatial administration, and all of their big um, projects, like draining the Copaeus Basin, may have put too much of a strain on the underclass, on whatever you want to call them, the peasants, the landowners, the lower members of society, and that those lower members may have actually breathed a sigh of relief when the palatial sites went down under the stress of everything else. Uh, and though a lot of people died in Greece, I mean, there's, boy, the um, the estimates are anywhere from 40 to 90% of the people either died or migrated from uh, Greece in the aftermath of the collapse. Hard to tell exactly how many. But that those who survived may have breathed a sigh of relief because the upper echelons had overextended everything. Uh, and one thing I would point to is Again, from the the evidence of like the pollen, it looks like things were really good in the 14th and 13th centuries BCE, such that they may have been tempted in Greece, for example, to overextend, and that when times got rougher with the drought and such in the 12th century, that they found it hard to keep things going as they had been. So. There were flaws, but it's very tough for us to figure out exactly what they were. But from my point of view, I think the main thing was a lack of self-sufficiency and an over-dependence on others. Uh, And again, to make it relevant to today, I would say that their supply chain not only was um, devastated, but actually came to an end. You know, we're having trouble getting chips these days such that, you know, there's a there's a waiting list for new cars. Well, imagine in the ancient world if the line, uh, the the trade for tin had been cut, and you can't make bronze anymore. So I, I think again uh, that the ancient world is far more relevant to us today than most people understand. And so supply chain shortages today. And back then, and I think that had a lot to do with the administrations back then being unable to cope with the stressors that were taking place. All right. Well, we would like to thank our guest for this 438th show, Dr. Eric Klein, professor of classics, history, and anthropology, former chair of the Department of Classical and Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, and current director of the Capital Archaeological Institute at George Washington University. We've been talking about 1177 BCE, the year civilization collapsed. The history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. You can listen to ROI as it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALAHD2, 88.5 FM and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALAHD2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio, all in one word, in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. This is ROI, recorded at Station KALA, St. Ambrose University.